Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. We're super excited you're here. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Billy. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. It's a huge honor for me uh, to serve you in that way. Uh, we are actually in the middle of a series called Family Matters, and so we started it last week. And so uh, if you were here last week, then you know the sermon was on biblical manhood, God's design for the man. Uh, so this week is actually on God's design for the woman. And so uh, Stanley did an incredible job uh, for us last week, kind of walking through uh, exactly how God has designed men and exactly what men struggle with and things that the Bible specifically calls out uh, for men to do. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the family, God's design for the family. And then week four, we're going to talk about uh, God's design for marriage. And so uh, our hope for this series is that one, if you're in here and you already have a family, that it would be in a great encouragement for you, maybe even ways that you can take some next steps. Uh, if you're in here and you say, Billy, I don't have a boyfriend, girlfriend, I'm single, uh, it can still be helpful for you. I think understanding God's design for you as a man, God's design for you as a woman, uh, even vice versa. I had, I mean, ton of guys come out after last service and say, hey, I know you thought that was just for women, but that was helpful for me because I do think in a lot of ways, as men, we need to know what God has called and asked of women so that we can encourage them. And women, you need to know what God expects of men and needs to be able to encourage them that way. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up uh, to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to talk about three specific things this morning. One is God's design for women. What does Scripture teach us about how, how God has designed specifically women. Uh, the second thing I want to show you is a picture of spiritual maturity. What does it look like to be a mature woman of faith, a spiritually mature woman in God's word? And then lastly, uh, what is, what is, what, how would the enemy, Satan, try to attack God's design for women? So how would he specifically come against you? And so I pray and hope uh, that this will serve you well. I mean, what could go wrong? A man preaching about biblical womanhood, right? Uh, and so this is one of those Sundays that I'm very thankful uh, that God has given us his word. And so uh, I will definitely be sticking close uh, to God's word this morning. So Genesis chapter 1, we'll start in verse 26 and we'll move forward from there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 reads this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over us, over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Somebody say, very good. And then there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. 
And so this is the, the initial how the Bible opens of God creating everything. And the last thing he created on the sixth day was mankind. And so when God came up with his creation plan, not my creation plan, your creation plan, but God's creation plan, notice it wasn't just about males. And that's important for us to understand that this is not a male-centric world. This is a God-centered world, and he's designed male and female. And he said, let us make mankind in our image. And when we make mankind, he says, when he says we, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. He's referring to that. He's going to make them in two dimensions. And those two dimensions are we're going to make them male and we're going to make them female. And then it says he blessed them and gave them authorization to rule on his behalf in the visible world. That's earth as we know it. And just like he rules in the invisible world. And so in other words, when God came up with his plan originally, females were equal participants in that plan. They were not second-class citizens. They weren't created second because they're less than. They were equal in participating in God's plan. They are to be fully understood, fully used, fully valued in the plan of God. And unfortunately for so many of us, We've never been taught this. I mean, even as I was preparing for this sermon and talking to people and listening and reading, reading stuff, there's not a lot of people that are teaching uh, in God's word, uh, God's design for man and God's design for women. And so it's important for us to understand that we may, our view of what it means to be a man and what it means for, to be a woman might not come from God's word. And that's not good because we need to be able to know what God's word says about these things. We don't need to misunderstand or undervalue God's design for men or women because the world we live in, and even perhaps the church that you grew up in, may not have taught you about these things. Or maybe some of us are just in the room and we're like, Billy, I've never even thought about God speaking specifically to men or women. And so let's talk about it. This morning, I want to speak specifically about this question. What is God's design for women? What is God's design for women? Well, a couple things. Uh, letter A is this, you were created by God. That may sound uh, elementary, but it's very, very important. You were created by God. I want, I want you to let that sink in for just a minute. You were not an accident. You were created and designed by God on purpose as a woman, right? He didn't make a mistake, like literally he created you on purpose for a purpose. Psalm 139 teaches that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you are knit together in uh, your mother's womb by God. And that's important. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that you are God's workmanship, meaning that uh, literally it's an artistic word, that you are his masterpiece, that he painted you specifically how he wanted you. And you were created in Christ for good works that he has prepared beforehand for you. And the implications of being created by God and that truth are endless. I could literally preach a whole sermon just on that, but let me just give you a few. Because you were created by God, you have intrinsic value and worth. The fact that he created you brings a level of worth and value. That means nobody else in this world has the authority and the ability to tell you what your value is and what your worth is. That's why it's so essential that as a woman and as a man, we find our value and our worth in Christ alone. Because you were created by God, you're also loved by God. The fact that he created you is a demonstration of his love for you. 
right? And so many people live their entire life searching out love in places that will never give it to them. When God has literally given us his love through creating us, and then on top of that, sending his son to purchase us and the value of something, and his love is demonstrated by what he was willing to pay, which was his own son, his very own son. We are very significant. Because you were created by God, you also have design. You have meaning in life, and you have a purpose. You no longer have to ask the question, why am I here? What purpose do I have in this life? Because God has given us that because he created us. Not only that, because you were created by God, you are a part of his plan. God has a plan that he's unfolding until he comes back to get us for his second uh, coming, and you are a part of that. As a woman, you are essential. You are indispensable in the plan of God. This is why relationship with God is so crucial in our lives, because when we are reconciled to God as our creator in relationship to him, that's when we find the answer to life's greatest questions. Why am I here? Who am I? What is my purpose in this life? Only in a relationship with God through his word do we find the answer, the right answers to all of these questions. So let's start with identity and purpose. Letter B. You were created by God as an image bearer. Somebody say image bearer. This is an incredible term. Stanley talked a little bit about it with men last week. And this is the identity and purpose of all mankind. We're created in the image of God to bear the image of God in the world. That's what he wants. This is both men and women's primary purpose in this world. Genesis 1 teaches you were created in the image of God to bear the image of God, to reveal God on earth to people, to fill the earth with his glory through bearing his image so that when people see us, they see God, not a God that they've made up, but the God of the Bible that we demonstrate through the way we live our life, through walking in his design. And this is important for us to understand that both men and women have the same primary purpose, and that is to display God to the world. So you don't have to ask the question, who am I? I'm an image bearer. What is my purpose in this life? To demonstrate and display God's love and who God is to the world. And how do we do this? Well, a couple ways. We do it by loving God. We do it by becoming like Jesus, loving other people the way Christ did, making disciples, living the way Christ has called us to live. We begin to display God uh, the way he wants it. Tony Evans, one of my favorite uh, authors, teaches this. He says, literally, a kingdom woman, his definition for what it means to be a biblical woman is a female who consistently places herself and positions herself and operates under the rule of God in her life. Now that's what it means when you think of who God's created you to be. It means that you have placed yourself and positioned yourself up under the rule of God. So before you were a earthly husband, you had a heavenly husband, God, and he is the one that you submit to. He is the one that you want to place yourself up under. Write this down. The highest aim of womanhood is being conformed into the image of Christ. If our primary purpose is to be an image bearer, then the primary purpose of a woman is to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not marriage. It's not motherhood. It's not any other thing, single or married. 
the aim is the same, to be conformed to the image of Christ because that's God's primary calling on our life. Not that marriage and motherhood are bad things. They're good things, but that is the primary calling. So this is our identity. Are you walking in it? Women, are you walking in it? Men, are you walking in it? This is the identity that God's given us. Letter C, this one's more specific towards women. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, you were created by God as a helper, right? A helper. And a lot of people have hijacked this word uh, to make it seem like it's less valuable than the role of men. But I'm going to show you that it's not. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him. If you have a Bible, underline the word helper, suitable. Uh, those two words are very, very important. The word helper here is very, very significant. The only other time we see it in Scripture, it's used to describe God. When, when the Scriptures say that God is our help, God is our refuge, in our time of need, God is our help. That's the word. Ezer is the Hebrew word. Anytime you're studying the Bible, it's important to know that sometimes the words in Scripture that we've translated to English, they're hard to translate into English. And so we need to go back to the Hebrew, which is we've got a ton of resources that help us do this, and look at what did that word mean and where is it used in other places of the Bible so that we can know exactly what God meant when he said, I've created a helper suitable for him, right? And so that's what I want to do. Ezra is a word used throughout the scripture to actually show God and not to show weakness because God's not weak. It's to show God's strength. I'm here for you in your time of need. I am your help. And so when we think of the word helper suitable for him, the last thing we need to be thinking about is weak. What we need to be thinking about is God's strength. And so when he says that you are a helper suitable for, man, that's what he is saying. Also, the word suitable means counterpart in the original language. When you put those two, two words together, suitable helper, it literally means a collaborator. So think of yourself, woman, uh, as a collaborator. That's what God has designed for you. Man, a collaborator. We collaborate together to show God's design to the world, to reveal God's image better. If men weren't in the picture, we couldn't fully reveal the image of God. If women weren't in the picture, we couldn't reveal the image of God. And so whether we're married or not, we still need to be collaborators to reveal the image of God to the world in the church. So it means somebody, uh, basically the word uh, collaborator or suitable helper means that a woman brings the full weight of what God's strength is into a situation. Think the word God's strength. That's what he's showing. I love the way Tony Evans explains this. He was talking in the context of marriage and he said, listen, if you're married or you have a man in your life, he has no right to make decisions, with, uh, make decisions where your advice, thought, perspective, feeling, contribution are not fully considered and fully valued. Because God says you are more than just a cook or a cleaner. You are a collaborator. You are supposed to bring your ideas, your training, your gifts, your calling. And he is worse off if he doesn't take that and embrace it. Because he can't embrace it if you haven't embraced it, women. See, if you don't know that you're a collaborator by design from God, then you won't exist, then you will not insist on being collaborated with. 
But if you know and understand that God has created you to be a collaborator, then you and him both can step into this God's, into God's perfect design confidently, and it will lead to flourishing. So, men, this means that women are valuable. They're valuable to God. They should be valuable to you, and they're valuable in the kingdom of God. To be who God has called us to be, both men and women, we need one another. Like God has created us as co-laborers, collaborators together. He's designed us equal and different to complement one another. Say the word complement. So that together we can better display God and bear his image into the world. The theological word for this is called complementarianism. It means that we believe the Bible teaches that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God in God's design that men and women are created to complement each other. That's what it means. Both men and women are equally valuable to God and equally gifted by God. There's no difference in those. Equal value, equally gifted. But the difference is God has called men and women to play different roles, specifically in the home and in the church. No difference in value, just different roles that better reveal him to the world. Roles that if a man plays the role of a woman, doesn't reveal God. And if the woman plays the role of a man, it doesn't reveal God. God has a plan, a strategic plan to reveal himself to the world. And he's designed us to play these roles to reveal them. And when men and women function in these capacities specifically, the home flourishes, the church flourishes, God is glorified, and people literally see the image of God in the way that he has designed himself to be seen. And so in the next few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at the roles of men and women in the home. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time on that this morning, but I do want to teach on what men and women in the church and that relationship should look like, because I don't know that I'll have time to do that any other. And so um, I want to show you this. So according to God's word and his perfect design, many of you probably already know this scripture, 1 Timothy 3, which is... Paul writing to Timothy, and Titus 1, which is Paul writing to Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, basically, in God's word and his perfect design, the only office that he has reserved in the church for men only is the office of an elder. How many of you guys have heard that before? Has everybody in here heard that before? Is that some new information? All right, I need some participation. How many of you guys have not heard that before? Anybody? Okay, so in the Bible, there's a role. You see a clear qualification for an elder that says the husband of a wife. Some people argue over that and say, well, that was contextual and all these things, but it's really hard to take it out of the Bible. And so we believe that as a church, that this role of elder, which is kind of the ultimate overseers, and we do a plurality of those, right? So not just one senior pastor. That's why you don't ever hear me say, hey, I'm the pastor of Connection Church. No, I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders, and so we lead in plurality so it doesn't become about one person, and all of those are men. Does that mean they're men because men are smarter than women? No. Does it mean that they're more valuable than women? No, it's just how God designed his church to work. That's what he wants. That's the role that he has called men to play is that role of elder. God's clear in his word. He wants the authority in the church to be held by men specifically because he's called them to that and designed them to lead in that way. It's not a shot at women. It's just how God wants his church to work. Also, we know in the New Testament, the book of Corinthians, 
God has designed his church as a body. He says we are the body of Christ, meaning we're made up of different parts. Think of it like a body. One person's the hand, one person's the foot, one person is the finger, one person is the butt cheek. You know, you got all those different parts. I won't tell you who's who. Um, if, if you're thinking I'm not the butt cheek, it might be you, right? So, um, but the hand doesn't say to the foot that I don't need the foot, and the foot doesn't say to the hand that I don't need uh, the hand. They're all important. So this is meaning all gifts given by the Spirit of God, which is what our spiritual gifts come from, are available to both men and women. There's no gift given in the Bible that's only given to men. You never see that. You read through the Bible, gifts are dispersed not based on gender. They're, they're dispersed by the Spirit of God, through the grace of God, to whomever God wants them to go to. And that's important. That means men and women can lead in the church. Men and women can serve in the church. Men and women can teach in the church. Men and women can uh, be hospitable, uh, have the gift of mercy, have the gift of generosity. And you could just go on through the rest of the, the gifts given to us in Scripture. And for our church to be who God has called us to be, we need women growing and contributing to every area of our church, offering their unique perspective and God-given gifts. I mean, I could not imagine standing up here to preach today without sitting in a room of women in our church and talking with them through this message. Every Thursday before I preach, we have a sermon prep meeting, and I invite people from our church into this meeting to help me learn how this scripture applies into their life. doesn't change the truth of what God's word says, but say, hey, what do you think about this? How can this apply differently into your life? What are some questions you think I need to be asking? How can we serve our church and our people well through this? And so it's so helpful to be able to invite three women from our church into that meeting and say, hey, what do you guys think about this? What can be? And so a lot of the content that I'm teaching you today actually came through what God showed them through these scriptures in that way. And so it's very important that we see that, that men and women together working to move the mission of God forward is how God designed this thing to work. And so as your pastor, I just want to give you a few things before I move to maturity for a woman. The first is this. At no point has Christianity ever suppressed women. So I felt like I needed to address that. Most of the women that I talked to this week and a couple weeks ago that uh, for some reason felt like that Christianity uh, and, and their view of it from their past was that men are better than women. And I just want to go ahead and debunk that uh, right now. God's design is perfect and it actually leads to male and female flourishing. Like he's perfect. He designed it good. It, it does that. Uh, women have always flourished in Christianity from the woman at the well, God saving her, uh, to the cross where women were present at the cross, to the tomb where the people that found Jesus, uh, found the empty tomb were women and proclaimed the message for the first time uh, were women to the great commission. God has used women powerfully in that. Listen, there are more women missionaries on the field today than there are men. Get that? Like God is using women in a very powerful, powerful way all across uh, the world. Uh, I could go through Different stories, Rahab, Book of Joshua, Ruth, Esther, Deborah, Priscilla, Lydia. I mean, tons of women in the Bible that were used to make huge ripple effects in the kingdom of God. Any person who tells you different has misunderstood the scriptures. 
Throughout the Bible, women are used in incredible, incredible ways. The second thing I want you to know is that if you're a woman uh, in our church and this is your church, we need you. Like you are a huge part. And some of you guys, all I can say is thank you because we have more women serving in our church than we do men. And it's like 60-40. And so, men, that is a shot at you. Yes, hear it that way. I'm not encouraging you. Like we need to step up. But, man, we have so many women that sacrifice themselves to serve every Sunday, that sacrifice of themselves to go and be missionaries across the world, that sacrifice of themselves to pack up and move to a different town and be a part of planting churches in contexts that don't have healthy, gospel-centered, discipleship-driven churches. Women are just killing it when it comes to the mission of God. And if you're a woman in this church, I want you to hear me clear. Do not dumb yourself down. Because men in the church are, no, are doing that. You continue to flourish. You continue to move forward and grow spiritually. And, and, and we need your perspective. We need your pursuit of God. Your gifting, your leadership. Do not shy away from operating in them. God desires to use you. And as a church, we want to see God use you in that way. Do not put a lid on what God can do uh, in your life and what he can use you to do. And then lastly, men... I want you to understand to be like Christ is to value women. You know, we, we uh, not necessarily just our society, but in the history of humanity, there has just been a tremendous devaluing of women. And uh, it's, it's, it's sickening to actually read a bunch of articles. And so when you look at the teaching of Christ about women, there is a valuing there. Like there is a tremendous valuing and equality there. That's valuing your wife. That's valuing other women in our church. That's valuing women outside of the church. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God or in our church. They are gifts from God to be cherished and valued, and they are your sisters in Christ. And that's how God intends for it. And there's this teaching, I'm telling you, that's just rampant in our church. And I guess because we grow up in such a sexually sinful environment where literally as a pastor, multiple times I've had people literally try to ingrain this in my head to keep my distance from women in the church. And I understand sexual purity is huge and I do not put myself in bad situations. But the only teaching that I get about women in the church is literally the only thing they are is a threat to your marriage. And I want to read this because I wrote it down clearly because I want you to hear it. If the only concept of a relationship with a woman who is not your wife is that she is someone that you might accidentally sleep with, then you have a shriveled and wrong understanding of male and female relationships in the church. Like it is clear in scripture that the world should look into the church to see how male and female should relate to one another. And there should be tremendous honor there, tremendous valuing there. We should view one another as God views us, daughters of the king, sons of the king, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, co-laborers in the gospel. And that's what we are, partners, collaborators to work together. Now, that looks different in the context of marriage, and we'll talk about that differently. But we must see women the same way God sees women. Secondly, I want to look at a mature woman. So what is maturity? This is God's design. Part of that design is, okay, what does it look like to, to grow and to grow towards maturity 
as a female. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is an incredible book. Uh, it's one of the pastoral epistles, and Paul's writing to Titus. He's on the island of Crete, which is a, a pretty, uh, pretty interesting little island. It's kind of a place where pirates hung out. A lot of trade came through there, a lot of sexual immorality. Just think of like uh, spring break, you know, where you're partying and all that stuff's going on. That's kind of Crete, right? For the pirates, this is where they go for spring break. And so Titus is here. He's planted a church. There's a lot of debauchery, a lot of sexual sin, a lot of drunkenness. All this stuff is going on. And he, he begins to establish a church and establish leaders. And Paul's writing to him on how to do that. Listen to verse 1 in chapter 2. Paul says, you, however, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So teach him what's in the Bible, Titus. Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate. They must be fighting all the time out there. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. So I could teach a whole sermon on that, men, but if you want to know what a mature man is, that's it. Verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live their lives, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So what I want to do is out of that passage, craft a definition of a godly woman or a, bib a biblically mature woman. And so I want to do this to help you, right? So don't see this through the lens of condemnation, but see it as an encouragement towards where the Lord wants you uh, to go, and hopefully it will challenge you. The first, letter A, is that a godly woman is reverent in the way that she lives her life. Reverent, the word reverent is to, means holy. It means to be like Jesus. It means to be worshipful or it means to fear God in every area of your life. It means that the loudest voice in your life is the voice of God. That he means more than anything. The godly woman loves Jesus, pursues holiness, and strives to honor God above all else. She lives in the fear of God, meaning that God's opinion of her matters more than anyone else's. She's not perfect, but she desires to be more like Christ every day. And when you're in the presence of a godly woman that lives this way, it does not take long to see that honoring God is her primary priority. It's very, very, uh, it's very, very prevalent when you're, when you're in their presence. Secondly, the godly woman fights sin. Paul specifically mentions three sins here, slander, gossip, and addiction. Most women in this world use their words in terrible ways. They use their words to tear others down. The godly woman doesn't do that. She uses her words to build others up. doesn't mean she doesn't speak truth. It just means she speaks truth in love, and she uses her words in a way that honors God. Most women in this world actively and unashamedly participate in gossip, like that's part of what drives them is learning what's going on in others' lives and talking about it. Godly woman doesn't do that. Most women in the world give themselves over to some form of addiction, whether it's wine, social media, attention from guys or from others, drugs, Netflix, shopping, entertainment. The godly woman doesn't. She fights addiction and finds her satisfaction in Christ's alone. Thirdly, she's a disciple maker. She's a disciple maker in the home and outside of the home. So whether you're here and you're married or you're single, 
You give your life away to teaching and training other women. Specifically here, older women are to teach younger women. Her motto would be to love God, to love people, and to make disciples, to teach others to love God and love people the way God has commanded. If you're here and you're married with children, then Paul specifically says that this woman gives her life away to teach and train up her children spiritually. Not only that, uh, but to he he uses the language busy at home, right? I've heard a lot of men Uh, preachers absolutely twist this to to say that women need to clean and cook and all this other stuff. That's not what it means. Not that that's a bad quality. Keep cooking, keep cleaning. That's great. We'll help. But it could mean a few things here. It It could be linked to what Paul said before, which was a statement about purity, sexual purity, meaning being busy at home is a great way to not fall into sexual uh, temptation. If you're busy at your, at your home, with your family, your children, with your husband, then you're not focused on trying to find sex in other places, right? Could mean that. That's what it meant in the life of David. You remember when David fell into adultery with Bathsheba? He should have been on the battlefield doing what God asked him to do. He was back home, and he was, he was doing what, it, what God asked him not to do. He wasn't busy. He was idle, and because of that, he fell into, uh, that was a big part of it. Most likely what Paul's saying here is that women should prioritize the spiritual health of their homes. So think about it. The opposite of being busy at home would be to be busy with other things, to not prioritize your home. So I take it to mean that Paul wants the home to be a big priority for women, especially those that have families. This is not an excuse to say that home shouldn't be a priority for men. It should be too. But specifically here, he's saying it should be a priority. Kate and I talk to moms all the time, uh, young moms who are stressed out uh, because literally they're restless because they've, they feel like they're having to prioritize things over their family. And they've made commitments or they've made financial decisions that force them to work 50, 60 hours a week and they can't be there for their kids to pick them up from school or or spend time with them, or go support them, or whatever they want to do. And so we see this desire inside of women to to be this for their families, to be the rock of that. You know, I think for women and for men, there's a time in life to to be career-driven. I don't think uh, women working or men working, I don't think God has issues with either of those things. I think there are times in our life where we can devote ourselves uh, to, to, to grow in our occupation or to climb the ladder Uh, in our job and be career driven. But when we have kids in our home, specifically the first 18 years, I just don't think that's the time to do it. I think God wants our children to be our primary priority when it comes to those years in their life. Again, I'm not against moms working. I just think a lot of people make financial decisions that force them to have to do that. And then they look back 18 years after their kids leave and they're like, man, I should have devoted more time in their life. So the question is, how can we be busy at home? How can a woman be busy at home in the words of of Paul? Well, I think the first thing you can do is pray. Pray. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray that God would use your home in a way that brings glory to himself. I think read the Bible. Read the Bible with your kids. Read the Bible with your husband. Fill your kids' hearts and minds with God's word and guard their eyes and ears from things that would lead them away from God and what he says about them. Discipline your kids is another way. 
Discipline them. Raise them up in the ways of God. That's why God has given them to you. For Kate and I, one practical way to think about this is just put your phone down and be present when you're at home with your family. Like work can wait. Other people can wait. Spend quality time together. You will not get that time back. If you're married, not only to be a disciple maker in the home means to focus on your kids, but also uh, a godly woman gives her life away to help her husband. Be subject to their husbands is what Paul says here, meaning that this woman understands God's design for marriage and actually walks in it. If you know anything about marriage, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but marriage is, is a missional thing. It's a covenant that you enter into with a person to display God's love for his church, right? So and when, you, when you go into the covenant of marriage, God calls the man to play the part of Christ, and he calls the woman to play the part of the church. And so the way you love and serve one another should reveal to the world Christ and the church and that relationship. And he calls us to submit to that design. And so part of the man playing the part of Christ is that he is given the role of being the head of the household. That means that he will be held accountable for the household, right? So he stands before God for that. He's to set the spiritual thermostat of the home. He's to lead. He's to lead out of sacrificial love, as Stanley talked about last week. And then the woman's called to play the part of the church, to submit to the husband as he follows Christ. And so the godly woman understands that and knows it and understands that God's design is not... uh, is not bad, it's good, and it displays him to the world, and she submits and respects her husband and allows him to lead in that capacity. Not because he's smarter or even that he can lead better, but because that's what God has called him to do. The godly woman, uh, <clears throat> what's my next? The next, the next uh, letter D, what would that be? Four, the fourth quality is that she is pure and self-controlled. Pure and self-controlled. Paul here is referring to Uh, her relationship with sexual sin. Most of the time you hear people talk about men with sexual sin, but Paul talks to girls about it. The godly woman flees sexual sin. Flees meaning flees its presence. Don't flirt with it, flee away from it. Whether it's pornography or adultery, sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, homosexuality, living together with with someone before you're married, whatever the sexual immorality is, Paul says to flee it. The godly woman is self-controlled. What does that mean? Self-controlled means she's able to recognize sin, recognize something is against the design of God, and walk away from it and say no, and say no, this is not of God. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. She's not controlled by her emotions, but she builds her life on obedience to the word of God. And then lastly, Paul says that she is kind. A mature woman is kind. Kindness, by Webster's definition, is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. And this may be the most important characteristic that I could talk to women about today. Be kind. Be kind. That's what God wants you to be. Women in our world can just be plain out mean. And you know that, and I know that. Heck, they're making movies entitled Mean Girls. And we watch them for entertainment. Like, how, how clear could that possibly be? God's design is different. He desires women to be characterized by love and kindness and generosity and 
that they would be considerate. That's one thing about godly women that I love is that they see needs in the life of people and, and are so considerate of people who are in vulnerable positions. And they're like, Billy, we need to do something. And I'm like, absolutely. Why didn't I see that? And so when we're operating in that, it's very, very important. So my question is this, are you pursuing this kind of maturity and godliness? If you're a woman in the room, like, are you moving towards these characteristics? Like, are these things what you're seeking to grow into, a life of maturity that displays God to the world? Are you seeking to live a reverent life, a life where you're worshiping God and you're submitting to God and God's voice is the loudest in your life, a life of fighting sin and turning away from selfishness and selfish desires and turning to Christ, a life of participating in the mission and making disciples in your home and outside of your home, walking in sexual purity, displaying the kindness and love of God to people around you. Is this what you're moving towards? And for the men in the room, I think we can be a part in this. Like we can encourage women in our lives and in our church in this pursuit of godliness. The same way they can pray for us in pursuit and, and in our pursuit of godliness, we can do the same. A couple ways this works out in my relationship with Kate is just making time for her to spend time with God. Like create a space in her life where she can go read her Bible. I mean, with three kids, many of you guys have been there. It's hard to find time where you're uninterrupted, where you can spend some time praying. And so I'll just say, hey, let me hold the kids for a minute. You go, don't go too long. But go for a little while, read your Bible, and come back, you know, and just spend some time praying and spending time there and really trying to prioritize that. Make space where she can go meet with other women, younger women, and disciple them and, and help them, or she can be discipled. Value their opinion, like valuing her opinion is such a big deal. God's given me Kate as a gift in my life, and I'm so thankful that he's given me her so that she can speak into my life in ways that I may not see. And she can speak into things that, uh, in ways that, that God's gifted her to do. And so I'm very thankful for that. So, men, we can help in this process. And then the last thing I want to show you is what I believe to be Satan's attack on God's design. And so what would hinder a woman from becoming who God's called her to be? Well, I think there's four main schemes that you have to be aware of. You can call them barriers that would hinder you from becoming who God has called you to be in his design. The first barrier is our enemy. The enemy, Satan, he's a liar, right? We see that even early on in the book of Genesis. Right after God has given his initial design, the next thing that happens is a serpent, Satan himself, crawls up and begins to lead Eve astray, Adam and Eve astray. So let's read that. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. I want you to listen to it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. Somebody say crafty. Than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? So you can almost hear him. He's trying to trying to, to get them to question the goodness of God, trying to get them to question the word of God. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from, from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will actually be opened and you will be like God and you will know good and evil. You hear what he's doing there? He's trying to promise her something 
that would get her to eat of this tree. Little did she know what was about to happen. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, was pleasing to her eyes, and was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Now there's a lot more. I can't unpack everything in there, but I want you to at least see the big picture that's in here. Satan is promising benefits and blessings to the woman if she will do it his way rather than God's way. That's what he wants. God's not good. He's holding back on you. His plan's not good for your life. You know better. I'm smarter. He's holding back. I want to give you what God can't give you. That's the plan. When in reality, what happened? By her believing the lie and eating of the fruit, it actually led not to benefit, but to guilt, shame, death, destruction. I mean, notice in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasing to her eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, then she took it and ate. Our enemy is crafty. like He wants to attract you, and he uses vulnerabilities and sin in your life where he can say, ah, this will get her, this will get him, this will get her. And he does that way. He lures you in. He knows you. He knows your vulnerabilities. And he knows what you're more susceptible to. So if you struggle with self-worth and value, he's going to come after that. If you're longing for attention in an unhealthy way, he's going to send the right, wrong person into your life to give it to you. If you aren't satisfied in Christ, then he's going to send what seems good to you, good for food, pleasing to your eye, and seems desirable to take you away from God. If you aren't finding your identity and purpose in Christ, then he's going to try to distract you with temporary things that have no eternal value and get you to find your purpose and your sense of identity in those things. This is what he does. Listen to me. He's crafty. He knows you. But he wants to steal, kill, and destroy is what God's word says. That's all he wants to do. Everything God wants to do in your life, Satan wants to destroy it. Not only that, he wants to blind you while he's doing it. This is why we need people in our life to help us. Hey, I think Satan's trying to get you right there. Hey, I think you're going astray here. We need community to help us in these situations. But Jesus showed us how to defend against him, right? Remember Jesus when he was in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him? How did he fight the enemy off? Well, he knew God's word. He knew the truth of God's word. He could recognize the lie of the enemy and he could replace the lie with the truth of God's word. This is how we embrace spiritual warfare. This is what the armor of God is in Ephesians chapter 6 where we fight the enemy because we know the truth. You see, the best lies are those that look, feel, and taste the most like truth to us. The best lie in your life is the one that you'll believe. And that's the one he's coming after. But when we know and trust God's word, then we can fight the lies. And we can actually walk in the freedom that God's designed us to. So when the enemy says, you're worthless, God could never love someone like you that's done what you've done. We need to know Romans 5.8, that God's already demonstrated his love for us. Because while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. He loves us. When the enemy says, your way seems better than God's way. You know better than God. You're smarter than God. God's trying to hold back on you. If he knew your situation, he'd say, go this way. We need to know what Proverbs 14, 12 says. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to destruction. When the enemy promises that something other than God is going to satisfy you or something other than obedience to God is going to make you happy or going to fulfill you, we need to quote Psalm 16, 11. 
that God makes known to us the path of life. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And at his right hand is where pleasure is found. So the question is, will you believe God's truth or will you fall into Satan's lies? If you're going to walk in God's design for your life, you have to learn how to do that. And we don't have to do it alone. We need others. We need community. This is what connect groups are all about, talking about what's happening in our life and helping us identify the lies of the enemy that are coming after us. That's the first barrier. The second is the barrier that I'm going to call the world. Whether you know it or not, there's a natural drift in the world. Jesus says the days are evil. This is what he means. The natural drift in the world away from the things of God. The best way I know how to explain it is if you've ever been uh, on an escalator in a mall or in an in in airport or wherever it is, usually you get on an escalator and go down to make it easier and faster. But when you, you begin to follow God in this world, it can almost feel as if you're on an escalator going up that's coming back down. You're having to fight against the ways of the world to honor God. And that's going to get worse and worse as, uh, as time comes uh, to an end and Jesus comes back. God's already told us that. And so there should feel like there's a drift against uh, the ways of God in this world. And so what can happen in our life is if we begin to grow complacent or we begin to just kind of attend church and not actually pursue Christ, we begin to get into this drift where we begin to drift away and away from God. And we do it without even knowing, hey, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm still going to church. I'm still doing these things. But what happens is we just begin to drift into the ways of the world because there's no neutral in the Christian life. Either you're in forward taking steps toward God or you're going backwards. And to be complacent and neutral is to drift backwards. If you aren't moving towards God, you're drifting away from God, and this drift will always lead you in the opposite direction of godliness. So let me teach you about Titus 2. We'll just use that as an example. Titus 2 is the godly woman, so if we're drifting, then we would be drifting away from Titus 2. So listen to it this way. If godly women are characterized by reverence in the way that they live their lives and holiness, then the drift of the world and the worldly woman would actually be going the opposite direction. Their life would not be characterized by reverence and holiness. If a godly woman doesn't participate in slander, gossip, and drunkenness, then worldly women would do the opposite. If a godly woman teaches and trains and disciples other women, then a worldly woman would do the opposite. If the godly women sacrificially love their husbands and children, then worldly women would be prioritizing other things. If godly women are pure and self-controlled, then worldly women would be participating in the opposite. If godly women are loving and kind, then worldly women would be selfish and mean. If godly women strive to love and obey the word of God, then worldly women would do the opposite. They would not honor the word of God. They would not love the word of God. They would just do what they want to do. Obedience would not be a priority for them. So the question again, are you moving towards godliness or are you drifting into worldliness? The third barrier is the barrier of the flesh. Understand that's Christian language. Let me explain it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. 16. Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit of God, 
then you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, this is where a lot of people misunderstand salvation. They think when you become a Christian and you get saved, that everything in the Christian life begins to be easy for you that you never desire sin anymore, that there's just this instant justification, instant sanctification, instant glorification, where literally everything then becomes easy in the Christian life. But this is not true. Because the Bible teaches when the Spirit of God comes into our lives as a Christian, it's still trapped inside of a flesh, an old body that desires to do selfish, sinful things. Right. So all of your old desires are still there, but God's now given you some new desires to combat them. And so these desires begin to wage war in our life. And so if we are going to pursue uh, godliness and grow in our relationship with God, we have to learn that part of doing that is we are going to need to deny ourselves. That following our heart is not always going to be good. Because the Bible says the heart is actually deceitfully wicked. That the ways of our mind are not always the ways of God. That we have to begin to filter our mindset and our desires through the word of God. The Bible says the word of God renews our minds and the spirit of God brings the desires of God. But we have to allow our hearts and minds to be renewed by the word of God so that we can know how to crucify the flesh and follow God and walk by the Holy Spirit. So here's my question. Are you choosing to battle? Like, are you waging war? Are you surrendered to God? Are you denying yourself, denying your flesh, surrendering to God, denying those desires that want to do what you want to do and choosing to do what God wants you to do? That's a choice, and it's an everyday choice that you will make. And then the last one is this. Barrier number four is lostness, is lostness. For some of us in the room today, before we can think about even becoming a godly woman, we need to think about, becoming a Christian. Because listen, becoming a godly woman may seem like a list of rules. And it may seem like, hey, I need to pursue these qualities. But here's what I want you to understand. You don't have to do it on your own. And you can't do it on your own. Only the Spirit of God at work in our lives can produce maturity and godliness and can open our eyes to the things of Scripture. And so if you're in this room and you say, Billy, I I don't know that I have a relationship with God. I don't know that I have ever surrendered my life to Christ. Then the first step towards becoming who God's asked you to be and is calling you to be is to become a Christian. And listen, in a room this size, I know there's people, women, men in the room right now that you don't have a relationship with. With God, and maybe you're here and somebody drug you here for the first time. You had no idea I was preaching about women. You're like, oh my God, people preach on this. Yeah, we do. Um, but maybe you're here and you say, Billy, I need a relationship with God, and that's where it all starts. Well, I want to ask you to be bold right where you're at. I don't want everybody to just bow your head. I, I want to know who you are. You'd say, Billy, that's what I need. I need a relationship with God. 
I never knew that God created me for himself to be in relationship with him and that if I wanted to find identity and purpose, I needed to look to him. This morning, that's what I want to do. I want to start a relationship with him and begin to live out the life that he's called me to live. If that's you and for the very first time you want to do that this morning, I want to ask you to be bold. Would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you. Anybody in the room, you'd say, Billy, that's me. Amen. Anybody else? You'd say, Billy, that's me. Amen. Anybody else? I'll give you a second. So God, I do pray specifically for these individuals this morning. God, would you do a work in their heart right now? God, would they realize that your design for their life is good, is perfect? And God, you desire to give them abundant life. And that life comes through a relationship with you. And so God, would you lead them to a place of surrender and repentance this morning, God, where they would turn from their ways and turn to yours, trust you as Lord and Savior, and begin to walk with you. And God, for the rest of us in this room this morning, God, would you give us a heart to become who you've called us to be? God, you've called all of us to be image bearers. And God, we need one another to do that. We need men and women walking in the giftings that you've given each of us. So God, would you make us a church that looks more like you? God, would you create men in this church that are passionate about becoming who you've called them to become, supporting women to become who you've called them to come? Would you raise up women, godly women that do incredible things for you in our church? God, would you increase... Their, their, their wisdom. God, would you increase uh, their desire to, to, to live on mission, all the things that you've called them to do. Lord, I pray that they would come to fruition because you're the only person that can do that. So God, would you help us? We want to be a church that honors you. We want to be a church that bears your image in this community and around the world. So God, would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.